Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 267th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jared Siegel. Jared is a partner of Delap Wealth Advisory, a fee-only RA based in Portland, Oregon, that oversees nearly $260 million in assets under management for more than 70 client households. What's unique about Jared, though, is how he outsources middle and back office operations to help his firm concentrate on creating a high-quality, high-touch financial planning experience for its clientele of affluent business owners and real estate investors. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Jared expanded his firm's offerings beyond accounting services and into financial planning and asset management to do more work for their existing accounting clients. The way Jared leverages Jay Hughes' qualitative capital framework to have better non-financial conversations with new clients, and how Jared focuses his financial planning conversations to help clients use their money to delegate household tasks and leverage their wealth to create more time for themselves. We also talk about how Jared was reaching the point of unhappiness when he realized he was spending far too much of his own time on tasks he didn't enjoy and sometimes wasn't even very good at. How Jared's self-awareness motivated him to center his career on doing the client-facing work he loves rather than dealing with the everyday back office minutiae and how Jared was inspired by the outsourcing success of other advisory firms to hire a TAMP for himself and outsource his own investment operations. And be starting to listen to the end, where Jared shares how he was inspired by Angela Duckworth's book on grit when he was faced with his own challenges in the early days of his business. How Jared eventually got comfortable with the good that comes from adversity and gained an appreciation for how the early failures in life can ultimately shape us for the better. And the metaphor that Jared learned from a tech entrepreneur about the importance of Finding your tennis ball, a recognition that like the Labrador that loves to retrieve the tennis ball, when you find the work that truly fits you, it just comes naturally and feels more like play. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jared Siegel. Welcome, Jared Siegel, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, excited to be here and looking forward to today's conversation. I'm really looking forward to the discussion and and talking about what I I just I find a very common, not nearly discussed enough phenomenon in in our advisor world, which is just this dynamic that happens where we start advisory firms and you know it, it's awful for pretty much everyone at the beginning because it's really hard to get get initial clients get going. Like you start getting going, clients are coming in, they're engaging, they're paying. You're getting more of them. A few of them are even referring. Like the dollars start getting a little better. Things start adding up, and then and then it gets so busy that you're actually like, "Geez, I need some help around here." And we start hiring, and then hiring lets us grow a little more, and then we need to do a little more hiring, and then we grow a little more, and then we need to do more hiring. And then all of a sudden, at some point, a couple of years in, you don't actually do very much stuff with clients anymore because you're mostly stuck in this world of hiring and training and managing all the people and dealing with all the the back office and the systems and the infrastructure that goes with it. And and I know for for some of us in the advisor world, like that's fun. That's cool. Like we 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 want to be enterprise builders and we want to do the hiring and training and development. That's really fun. But for so many of us, at the end of the day, it, it usually comes down to 
I became a financial advisor because I, I like working with clients. And it's really not so fun. When I don't get to work much with clients anymore. And if you get to that not fun place, then you got to figure out what do I do to get it back to being a little bit more fun again? And just I, I, I know you've lived a version of this journey, like it got going, it got not fun, and you had to try to figure out how to get it back to being a little more fun again. So I'm, I'm just, I'm looking forward to having the conversation about what that journey is like and and how you navigate it, make the changes to get from a practice you're not enjoying back to one that you enjoy again. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, quite the journey and I'm still on it, still enjoying it, still learning, uh, still growing. And uh, I've gotten so much from this particular podcast, this particular community. I'm excited to, uh, to share some experiences. Awesome. So I think as, as we get started to dive in, why don't you start by just painting a little bit of a picture for us of your advisory firm as it exists today? I was a partner in a public accounting firm here in Portland, Oregon. Back in 2016, my partners and I were, were sitting around one of our, our meetings and we decided 20 years after uh, many other firms that it was time to get into wealth advisory, financial planning, and investment management. So we opened our first account back in 2016. You know, as we kind of put a, a bow on the year, we're at about $260 million across about 70 external client groups and just excited about the challenges and opportunities in front of us. So your so your advisory firm was born out of an accounting firm and, and I take it still still attached to an accounting firm as as the as the business. Yeah, the the accounting firm is 90 years old, about 125 people within our organization. And we serve business owners, uh, real estate investors, and operators. Oh, interesting. So focus particularly into, I guess, the, the niche as an accounting firm of, of real estate investors. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, we launched the practice to serve our current clients. And the needs that they had involved financial planning, estate planning, and coordination across their entire balance sheet, including the illiquid assets to optimize the after-tax outcomes of their decisions and strategies. And because those were the clients that we already were working with, that was our primary focus. So we've attempted to continue to narrow our focus so that hopefully individually we can expand our impact. So I I, I am curious just hearing this out of the gate, like niche with folks who are real estate investors, which you know, at least relative to our advisory industry traditionally, we're, we're frankly kind of hard clients to work with because we tend to do managed accounts on custodial platforms and they tend to directly own real estate that doesn't, doesn't necessarily fit on our, on our traditional investment platforms. So just how does that work serving clientele who tend to have a strong real estate focus? I mean, do you get the, the ones who actually are less real estate focused? Do you get the ones who decide to stop doing real estate and now suddenly have a bunch of assets they want to reinvest? Or do you end up still doing in investment dollars for real estate investors for whatever they've got that is not getting plowed back into real estate? It's probably the latter. You know, more recently, a lot of developers have refinanced projects. That's increased their cash flow. Deal flow on the real estate side here in the Northwest is slowing. There's this positive paranoia that many of them operate with, kind of what happens during the next real estate correction. And so they're always looking to make sure that they preserve liquidity. And right now with high inflation rates, there's a desire to preserve the purchasing power of that liquidity. And so we, it's a kind of a niche opportunity where not a lot of advisors are focused. And though the lion's share of a balance sheet still might be invested in real estate, 
there's still significant opportunity from a financial planning perspective as well as investment management perspective. Well, and, and at the end of the day, I think you'd said uh, 260 million of assets under management, seven, 70 plus client households. So just right doing my doing my napkin math here, like the the average client then is is still three to four million dollars of liquid assets potentially on top of whatever they're doing in real estate. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the richest people in the world, there's a high concentration of people that have either started companies or own real estate. And real estate's a really tax advantaged asset class. And so translates to liquidity. And over time, those individuals begin to accumulate some liquidity. And so we're just partners to help manage some of these tax strategies on an after-tax basis and managing that that liquidity is important. So they still might have significant assets that are that are non-liquid, but that doesn't preclude us from really leaning into that particular industry group. So help us understand now a little bit more the like the the team structure and staff structure. Like who who's on board, who supports 70 plus clients and 260 million under under management, and then we'll talk a little bit more about just what you do for them. But I want, I want to understand kind of team structure first. Yeah. We started the wealth advisory practice with myself. Uh, and then uh, one of my other tax partners was probably about 25% allocated to the financial planning and wealth practice. So we both got licensed and started. And so he's still probably about half time focused on the wealth advisory practice while continuing to manage his tax and estate planning practice. I have another advisor. He's an MBA, CPA, CFP, so kind of uh, comes from a CFO pedigree, acclimated to serving the, the business owner demographic and psychographic. Then we have two client service associates that are serving those, cli- those clients. And then we're supported by, uh, by Buckingham, which is essentially our, our virtual back office. Oh, and so thus, thus from a, a team end, like, you know, I, I heard 260 million of assets under management. And I didn't hear like trader investment team, like the stuff that comes on that end. So that's outsourced. The internal for you is essentially advisors and service associates that support the advisors. Yeah, uh, I'm sure we've all heard Jim Collins analogy. I think it's a Greek proverb. The fox knows many things and the hedgehog knows one. And at a moment of capitulation, in a moment of deep pain, I really wanted to focus on what part of the job am I good at? What part of the job are we collectively as a team good at? And how do we, how do we get the, the parts of the business that we're not uniquely gifted at, parts that aren't creating unique value for our clients, built quickly? And so you can either build it or lease it. And so in that moment in time, there was so much opportunity in front of us. We just decided that we'd be better off partnering with existing infrastructure and virtualizing the back end of our business. Okay. And then help us understand what you, like just what you do, what are you doing for, for clients in practice? Like what is, what is financial planning and wealth management look like for a typical client of yours? Yeah. Prior to starting the wealth advisory practice, I had spent probably 6,000 hours in advanced tax planning meetings with people that owned and operated businesses in real estate. And so that's still the focus of what we're looking at. But we've attempted to elevate it from kind of the tactical annual tax planning to truly long-term strategic planning. And there's that discomfort that exists, the dichotomy that exists that sometimes minimizing your cumulative lifetime taxes comes at the expense of minimizing taxes in a particular year. And so our financial planning practice really looks to optimize those, those decisions over, over one's lifetime, looking at really where the dollars will be consumed 
whether it's by the particular client, by their heirs, dollars that they give to charity, and or taxes along the way. And so we try to simplify the investment processes. You know, investments are merely a waiting room, you know, for the ultimate destination. So let's identify where the growth's going to occur so that we can locate it appropriately to minimize taxes. You know, from a, an investment thesis perspective, you know, we we're efficient markets oriented. We believe that Gene Fama's way more right than wrong. And so we're not trying to add that value through predictive economic active stock picking. Thus the the outsourcing to Buckingham, which is kind of a, a, a DFA, you know, value small cap tilt oriented investment shop. So following Fama French models. Correct. So, yes. So talk to us a little bit more of just what is like what does this tax planning look like in practice? I mean you talk about m- minimizing lifetime taxes, which understood like may not minimize in a particular year, but like what are you do what are you actually doing? Like what kinds of planning issues are you getting into where that crops up? Can you can you give me an example? Yeah, the the moments that a client inevitably encounters is there's a lot of planning around estate planning. And so you have large, rapidly growing balance sheets, generally illiquid. And here in Oregon, the estate tax kicks in at over a million dollars per person. And so a lot of our clients, almost all of them, essentially, they have estate tax issues at the state level, many of them at the federal level. And so the coordination of an estate plan within today's business plan is also part of that process. And so it really does require the collaboration of a variety of different service lines. And so we're regularly in meetings with our CPA counterparts within the practice, looking at some of the more advanced tax planning opportunities from an estate planning perspective, an income tax planning perspective. We deal with a lot of money in motion. You know, when when we're looking at a potential capital gains rate change, that really stimulated a lot of M&A activity within the lower middle market. And so a lot of our clients all of a sudden wanted to learn, how do I maximize the transferable after-tax value of my business? And that there's a lot of moving parts in that. And so again, it required the integration of income tax planning, estate tax planning, financial planning, and in many ways, life planning. What, what does life after the exit actually look like? And so that's kind of our focus is there's a really small percentage of Americans that actually own and operate businesses. Generally, they have pretty illiquid balance sheets. And so though a lot of financial advisors indicate that they would work with them, in practice, probably the majority of their clients don't fit that fact pattern. So you were a firm, whereas the the buzz was going around in mid twenty twenty with the early early versions of the Biden proposals of of a potentially very significant change in capital gains. Like you, you were a firm that was actually in there with clients who own businesses, having the conversation of like, are we gonna are we gonna potentially try to sell your business in the next three to six months to lock in current capital gains rates before this change goes through or potentially goes through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when the original proposal first kind of started to to get shared it looked looked to be significant you know a 39.6% capital gains rate on on gains over a certain threshold and surtaxes and estate tax <laughs> limit reductions and the elimination of a step up in basis there were all kinds of planning levers that were of high concern and focus of of our clients michael one of the planning things that we're really really focused on is is generosity business owners are in my experience, unbelievably generous. They recognize that their generosity is somebody else's miracle. There isn't necessarily a desire to silver spoon their their children or heirs. And so the integration of legacy and generosity planning is is one of the things that we 
spend a lot of time doing, whether it's private foundation work or, or donor advised fund planning because of the tax benefits of being generous during one's lifetime. So walk us through what the planning process looks like when a, when a new client comes on board. Because I, I, I guess that's an interesting dynamic because there's a good chance they're, they may already be an, an, an accounting client on the CPA side, I guess, with real estate or small business accounting. But they've said, I, I want to do more of this wealth advisory thing. So, sounds like Sounds like you guys are doing some good stuff. I want to go through your process. So when a client says, I, I want to get started with you, how, how does that work in practice? Like, what do you what do you actually do? What's the process with a new client? I want to separate the financial planning process from the investment management process. And so generally, we start with a fee, fee only or flat fee financial planning engagement, where we generally execute across three meetings. In meeting number one, we're laser focused on what James Hughes refers to as qualitative capital. And, and so it's helping us understand if, if money is kind of agnostic, if it's soil, if it's neither good nor bad, but what seeds are we planting in it? We want to understand what, what does the family want more of? And so the first meeting is incredibly just qualitative capital oriented, values oriented. Behind the scenes, we're gathering that financial information so that in meeting number two, we can show or present an initial rough draft of, hey, here's what we're seeing. What's right, wrong, missing, or confused? And we're showing the essentially the life map. Here, here are the things that you said were most important to you. And then we're using generally MoneyGuide Pro. We've got a variety of different planning tools, but just the cash flows out of MoneyGuide Pro that represent the client's goals and showing them that they're accounted for. And what I've found is there's generally a, a financial decision maker or a financial leader within, within a family, somebody who takes a greater interest or ownership of the finances. And, you, and we're attempting to tease the non-financial partner into the process. And we found that it's the qualitative discovery process and also the, the connection with, with the goals that get them to, to engage in the process so that there's really a shared vision for the family and an understanding of what they're trying to accomplish with their finances. The third meeting, we present the plan. But much like medical advice, we probably all have experienced that it's, it's easy for people to get the three ring binder and not actually implement any of it. So we're trying to distill it down into an actionable one year plan. And at that point, the client has the opportunity to implement on their own or partner with us as an execution partner for ongoing implementation. And that's where we would transition to more of your standard AUM revenue model. So I want to understand, I want to understand these a little bit more detail. So when you talk about meeting number one is, is focused on qualitative capital just like what is that what does that mean like just what are you what are you actually doing or what conversations are you having or what like tools or questionnaires or whatever it is that you're that you're using like what what is that conversation so it's informed by a framework that that James Hughes talks about in terms of intergenerational family wealth most of our clients are already financially independent from a Monte Carlo perspective. You know, I punch in the data and it's going to tell me 99% chance of success, but they're not emotionally free. And so we're attempting to speak to the family's human capital, intellectual capital, social capital, and spiritual capital. And so that process of just helping us understand why the money matters, I think a lot of financial advisors approach it kind of in this way. And I've just found for us that James Hughes framework for capitals that are non-financial is an incredibly important place to start. And so it's really client specific. And I'm attempting to to tease out or engage the non-financial partner as much as, as, as possible so that they have a voice in the plan. So how does this conversation flow in practice? Because like I'm, I'm just, 
I'm envisioning a client who's been working with the CPA accounting side of the business, which just I'm going to guess is probably not having a lot of conversations about social and spiritual capital. I'm maybe overgeneralizing on CPAs a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess it's a little bit more the taxes and the books and a little bit less this. You know, They're saying we've got more complexity. We want to engage with wealth advisory because we've got liquid assets that we need to make some decisions on and, and more estate planning and more tax planning. And, and then here they are on the first meeting, you're having this conversation about qualitative capital. So just how, how does that work from a, a client conversation perspective, from an expectations perspective? I mean, are, are new clients surprised when they get into these, like that these are the conversations you're bringing them in the first meeting? Or are you introducing them in a way that, that they were expecting that and comfortable with it? Yeah, I, I once heard that expectations that are uninventoried can be resentments in waiting. And, and so that stuck with me and I've always wanted to make sure that I inventory expectations and or share mine. And so prior to ever engaging, we walked through what what you could expect from the financial planning process and what that looks like and maybe why we're approaching it that particular way. And so the clients certainly wouldn't be surprised that we're going to spend time talking about it because we've talked about it during the initial kind of fit meeting. Hey, is this a fit? And discussed it in the planning process leading up to meeting number one. Hey, here's what we're going to be discussing and why. Essentially, meeting number one is is we're not going to be really spending a lot of time talking about anything financial, but then hopefully making that connection during meeting two and three, where we're connecting meeting one and the values discovery to meeting two and three in terms of execution. Michael, a different framework that I, I more recently discovered, again, just I'm always learning and reading. I'm curious. There's more things I don't know than, than I do know. Many of us have studied psychology and, and understand the importance of behavioral finance and behavioral psychology as it pertains to people's money and the importance of behavioral coaching within this particular industry. But Scott Kaufman is a, is a gentleman I, I recently encountered in his book, Transcend, has positively impacted me in the way I have conversations with my clients. He's He's reimagined Maslow's hierarchy of need, not as a pyramid, but as a sailboat. Uh, what's notable is, is Maslow never actually published a pyramid that was stolen by managerial consultants and sold to Fortune 500 companies after the oh, fact. Really? So Ma Maslow's hierarchy may have been a hierarchy of stuff, but he never drew a pyramid. No, he he didn't he didn't represent it that way because it implied almost a video game existence of life that level one led to level two and that you wouldn't go back to level one. Right. It, it didn't represent how dynamic life is, and so Scott Kaufman, who's a psychologist and an, a huge Maslow fan, spent a tremendous amount of time reading his journals, his unpublished papers, his lectures, and what he reimagined it as is as a sailboat where the the hull of the ship is safety connection and self-esteem. And his point is he likes that metaphor because the world around us is unstable. Our own lives are unstable. And so it's ever changing. But to the extent that you have safety, connection, and self-esteem and a role, the part of that is, is finances. It allows you to navigate the rough waters of the world we live in. But then he connects it to the sail via mast, right? And I and that's kind of I'm focused right now on the mast and the role that that plays and the role of the advisor to connect the sail to the ship and, and the sail is labeled exploration, love, and purpose. And so if all we do is spend time talking about how to build Noah's Ark, but we never talk about how to build the sail, we don't go anywhere. And so I'm really focused on understanding how do we do a better job as an industry connecting the whole of the boat to the sail so we have more meaningful impact in clients' lives beyond stuff that would just show up in an Excel document. 
So how do you get to these conversations in practice? I mean, just like, are, is there a questionnaire? Is there a, is there a system? Is there a, a, a series of conversation steps that you go through? Is, just, is this just something you've personally become so steeped in, you can just kind of plow into this conversation and have it and it works? Like, how does this qualitative capital conversation work in practice? Mixed, right? I mean, I think there's certain, certain people that are more comfortable getting authentic quicker Certain people are more willing to be vulnerable. And so to some extent, it's choose your own adventure. Uh, favorite question I, I enjoy asking, it's kind of an odd one, but it's like, hey, if I really wanted to know how you're doing, what question would I ask you? And if people want to share something that's meaningful or deep, they will in that moment. And if somebody wants to keep it superficial, they will as well. So it's not as though everyone embraces this process, but I think the opportunity to go deeper is there. And for somebody who's already financially independent, whose Monte Carlo is saying 99%, it's a challenge, I think, that for the industry to help them better understand, okay, so how does this wealth you know, impact your community, your family, and those around you in a more meaningful way? It's a really cool question. If, if I really wanted to know how you're doing, what would I ask you? And people, people will say, you'd ask me about my marriage. You'd ask me about my oldest, my oldest daughter. You'd ask mm-hmm. me about my largest client at, at the office. Or they won't. And it's, right. you know what, it, they'll take it where they want to take it. So that's the first meeting. You said the second meeting is, I think you'd said, uh, a life map and money guide pro. So what, what is a life map and how does money guide pro fit into it? Yeah, we're just trying to summarize. Essentially, we started with why money matters. Essentially, how do you want your wealth to impact your family? How do you want it to impact your children? How do you want it to impact your kids? I mean, at the end of the day, that's those are the destinations for wealth. You'll spend it. Kids will get it. Heirs will get it. You know, Charity will get it. And the government's going to get some. I haven't met anyone that's filled out their beneficiary form with the IRS. So it's generally a combination of kids and charity when they're already financially independent. And so we share kind of, hey, here's where we started. I share a picture of the the client kind of a in, in the center with these, here's what you said was most important. Here's kind of what you're attempting to accomplish from a career perspective. Here's what you're attempting to accomplish from a charitable perspective. Here's what you said you were going to try to accomplish, you know, within a marriage or within the family. Here's some maybe unique nuances, risks, or concerns that we're trying to, to address you could obviously turn that project into a multi-day project in terms of like what's most important to a family. So we're trying to to summarize it. Just more importantly for anything else, later on, when we encounter market volatility and all of a sudden there's some fear and uncertainty around a, a plan or a strategy, I want to get back to kind of the roots. Generally, the destination doesn't change, but how we get there, it might or it will actually. So getting clarity around those destinations is pretty important. And then we're just visualizing kind of the the cash flow out of Money Guide Pro where it's showing here are the goals that you said were most important for and, and they're all accounted for. And the cumulative cost of this plan is X. And now we're able to test the liquidity and capacity of your balance sheet. And so if we know where the income's coming from, then we can tax plan around it, both from a tactical perspective and from a strategic perspective. And the probability of success is X. And and so what's most important over the next 12 months is this. And planning is probably a lot more like hygiene or fitness than anything else. You're never really done. You're perpetually updating it. And so then the planning process isn't a singular experience, but an iterative experience. So two follow-ons here. The first just so like what literally is the life map? I mean, just your you're giving it a label like it has a con- like it's a concrete thing. I mean, this is is this like a literally a deliverable that you create? Is this is this what you call the financial plan and like the money guide pro output or is this a separate thing? Like what what is what is the life map as you're framing it here? 
essentially it's just a, an overly simplified visual, probably very similar to something that you could pull out of smart art and PowerPoint, you know, with the client in the middle and at the top, we've, we've tried to distill down what, what is the most important thing to those particular families and phrasing it as concisely as we possibly can. We're not trying to, to turn it into a monstrous deliverable. We talk about what's most important from a family perspective, what they're attempting to accomplish with their kids or grandkids. We talk about what their career objectives are, you know, and how they think about work. Is retirement financial independence or is it the absence of, of an employed paycheck or ownership paycheck? We talk about charitable giving goals now and when they're not here. We try to inventory goals and concerns, and it's all on a singular piece of paper, essentially just a true north. If we're if we're pointing directionally of where we're trying to go, you know, we often use the the metaphor of of GPS. You know, where are we today is a prerequisite for GPS to work. Where are we going is a prerequisite for GPS to work, and how we get there is a byproduct of those two parts. And so we're just trying to, in an overly simplified, non quantitative way attempting to point to the direction that they told us during meeting one is most important to them. And so like, just walk us through really quick, like, cause you mentioned a couple of boxes of the life map. Like I think you'd said there, there's a, you know, what's the most important to the family. There was something about career. There's something about charity. So like, what are all the things that you're mapping and reflecting back to them? Well, money can get you things, experiences and impact. And so that's somewhat of a framework of what we're trying to capture the destinations, as I've, as I've mentioned, are you can spend it, give it to kids, give it to charity and done in a way so that the government gets as little as possible. And it's really just trying to keep keep the client directionally and emotionally connected to the plan again, because there's always a, a client that's more oriented towards the Excel document. And then there's the non-financial partner that quickly loses interest. And so by combining something that is qualitative and, and directional and, and more visual with, with something that's more quantitative as in the financial planning deliverables, it's a way to keep both parties engaged. And then you said you're creating a Money Guide Pro output as well. So if, if, if meeting number one is all of the qualitative discussion, like where do you get the data that you're plugging into Money Guide Pro to do a to do a plan like is that you just already have it because they were probably CPA clients already so you can pull the data separately is there a like data gathering form or process that happens between meeting 1 and meeting 2 like what when do you actually get into this part most of our clients generally uh, you know work with banks and so they're regularly creating personal financial statements and so per, a mm. personal financial statement and a prior year tax return and maybe some brokerage statements we can generally capture the lion's share of what we need. And so though there are often extra zeros behind our clients' net worth, concentration creates a lot of wealth, but it's diversification that preserves it. And so for a lot of our clients, the lion's share of their net worth can show up in the value of the real estate occupied by the business and the value of the business. And so a lot of the time they're they're trying to create a diversification strategy or a liquidity strategy or or going through the planning process to understand how much they'd need to sell their business for and walk away with on an after-tax basis to really support all their financial goals as a family. And then the third meeting you said is presenting the plan, but you've also said you're showing Money Guide Pro results and outcomes in the second meeting. So what, when you say the third meeting is about presenting the plan, like what, what's, what's the plan for you? What's actually getting presented in the third meeting? Here's what we updated from meeting two to meeting three. So meeting two to three, there's some refinement or tweaks, updates that the client has requested. And we've disclosed our assumptions. 
We've again shown the the probability of success is high. And now we're working into the one-year plan. I mean, candidly, because the world is changing all the time, we underemphasize the plan as is anything that's longstanding. It's the plan is outdated the minute that we're done with it, essentially. And so an important part of the planning process is getting clarity around what you must do, not what you could do and creating some action around it. And so rather than making it sound like the planning process is a singular experience, I said, hey, that's a little bit front front loaded. We're going to spend some time creating the strategic scaffolding together, understanding where we are now, where we're going and how we get there will inevitably respond. Just like when we're going to get groceries and there's a car accident or we miss a turn or we need to get gas. This plan will be like GPS and allow us to quickly iterate and update because very rarely does the, the true destination change. And so I'm underemphasizing the, the plan from a long, long-term perspective, but distilling it down into what's most important over the next 12 months to create a, a level of focus, urgency, and execution. And then what does all of this cost for you? Like, how do you, because you said you, you, you do this on a standalone basis for clients and then you get into assets under management and ongoing. So what are you charging as a planning fee to go through this this three meeting planning process? Uh, we're charging thirty five hundred dollars currently. Okay, and just how did you arrive to that number? Pretty unscientifically. We're only a handful of years into this business, and so there's just a tremendous amount of iterative learning. You know, build, mm-hmm. measure, learn, and that iterative learning of of what are we doing? What is it worth? Is it working? We're perpetually learning, so it's uh, this curiosity to to figure out, can we do it differently or better uh, is there. And pretty unscientifically, I, I think I looked at the Kitsis financial planning report survey, mm-hmm. and that seemed to be about in the middle. And so I said, let's start there because to some extent, it's it gives us an opportunity to, to take the client for a test drive. It's an opportunity for the client to take us for a t- test drive. And I, I think that we can add a lot more value through planning than we can through predictions. And so it's an opportunity to build a shared vision together. Whereas previously, you know, we weren't as much focused on the financial planning process. That was just part of what we did previously under an AUM model. When I was going to ask, like, what what led you to do this separate planning process and then investment management in AUM? Like, why why separate them out? To some extent, it was an opportunity to further align the client with with who we were. Obviously, we're not a good fit for everyone, but we can be for some. And so if you're unwilling to create the time and space and investment in the plan, it means that you might not value what we, we believe is our primary value proposition. If you're just looking for performance and we're an efficient markets firm, you're probably going to get itchy if you hear about the performance of, of a particular asset class out on the golf course with your buddy. And so for us, it's an opportunity to to also create alignment. And it also allowed us to better answer questions during, during turbulent times of from a behavioral coaching perspective, I was a better advisor to them if if I had a better understanding of where they were attempting to go and and more importantly, why they were attempting to go there. So then help us understand what the investment management AUM side of the business looks like in practice. They they go through this planning process and then at some point at the end, there are what well, like there are planning action items to implement in the coming year that you've tried to sort of scaffold out so that they're not getting hit with everything at once. There's an implication or an expectation that you're also going to help them implement the investment management side along with this. Like, just how does this transition flow? Like, how how do you actually get from planning fee to investment management going forward? We describe the the decision 
at the front end of the process and again, describe the, the pending decision after meeting number two and the decision whether they want to implement it themselves or with somebody else or the decision to, to hire us and implement. And obviously how we craft or draft that one-year plan is, is informed by the client's predisposition of like, do I want to do this on my own or would I rather hire somebody else to do it? And, you know, our clients, uh, a byproduct of wealth is complexity. It often, the clients have more, more financial resource than they do have time. And so we talk about repurposing money to create time and the cognitive research around like the control over your time can actually create more happiness and just more money. And so clients believe that and they don't, they're not trying to be an expert in everything. And so probably 85% of the people that we take through the financial planning process ultimately hire us going forward to, to manage the liquid net worth and help implement whatever was, was crafted in the one-year plan. And then we draft that plan and, and begin execution the following 12 months. So it's an interesting framing that, you know, the all the research out there on using money to create time leads to leads to greater happiness. And so, when you get clients that are a certain level of affluence, where as you've as you've noted, like their Monte Carlos all show ninety nine percent plus because there's some some pretty substantive wealth there. That you know they're they're past the point of I need to grow my dollars just to achieve my goals. They're there. They're at the point of how do I maximize the use of do- my dollars to you know ma- maximize my enjoyment of my days on Earth and conveniently that that leads them quickly in direction of like, so do you really want to be self-implementing all this stuff? Or like, can we help you implement this so you can go back to doing the things that you actually enjoy doing in life, which is probably not worrying about your taxes and estate and portfolio? Absolutely. Generally, when you, when you, Share with the client, more money doesn't create more flourishing. You, you get a nodding head. They understand that. They've experienced that. And so then what is the, what is the investment management fee that you charge? Like how does this, how does AUM work on an ongoing basis after you get through the initial planning process? We have a standard waterfall fee schedule where we're charging 95 basis points on the first million, 85 basis points on the next four, 70 on the next five. 50 basis points on the next 10 and anything over that amount is 30 basis points. And for your clients, that fee schedule bundles in, like that's the investment management and all the planning work and all the implementation and all all, all the stuff is is bundled together into one at that point? Correct. And do you ever have clients that are like, hey, enjoyed paying you a planning fee. I would like your help doing the planning work. I don't, I don't need you to manage my money. Can I just pay you to do the planning work separately? We haven't actually really encountered that. Obviously, the industry is changing and the AUM model has some limitations. And within the client group that we're serving, there's significant complexity and planning and and worth that isn't represented in what's at the custodian. And so kind of exploring what are some alternative revenue models that would enable us to serve those clients on a model that's independent of AUM, because again, AUM I think is is great in some ways, but also has its limitations uh, as well. And I haven't really discovered anything, but you know, continuing to iterate conversations with clients, like, hey, what what do you think would be fair? Again, we're serving entrepreneurs that, in many respects, I'm talking to them peer to peer. Like, hey, from a value capture perspective, how would you bill for this if if you were me? What is interesting? What's attractive? And kind of trying to focus group the business owner or entrepreneurial community that we're already working with that understands our value proposition. So I guess if I ever figure it out, I'll have to let you know. Well, but I, I guess the core of it to me, right, for I'm sure there are a lot of advisors at least who would be concerned, like 
if I start charging planning fees and then I try to shift them to AUM, they're going to say, can you just keep doing the planning work and not the AUM? And it sounds like, at least for your clientele, like, no, not not actually a problem. Yeah, we haven't encountered that. I mean, in general, people coming from consuming accounting fees or legal fees on an hourly basis, independent of the value received, I don't think a lot of people love that business model, either within those industries or or outside of those industries. So then help us understand just from this ongoing AUM model, as you said, you're you're kind of efficient markets hypothesis folks, right? Building on building on Fama's work, you're managing portfolios that are that are ultimately delegated to a to a back office firm to support. So I was just wondering, like, do you do you get concerns around clients saying, like, why am I paying you a an AUM fee for quote unquote a, a passive portfolio? I, they probably don't literally say passive portfolio; it's an industry term. But like, you know, you're you're telling me not to trade to beat the market and just hold on to stuff. Why am I paying you to just hold stuff while you talk about how markets are so efficient? Like, maybe I could be doing this on my own. Again, maybe that's an, an advisor fear and not a client concern in practice, but. Do you get concerned about we're, we're charging these AUM fees for heavily passive-oriented portfolios? No. I, I mean, I, I look at Vanguard's research around and what, what opportunity to add value does a, an advisor have. And a significant portion of it is behavioral coaching. And obviously, it's during specific moments of time that you're coaching. We're laser-focused on the deep tax integration across the client's entire financial statement. And so... The opportunity to uh, coordinate with their tax team on a quarterly basis, you know, running tax reports towards the end of the year, we're, we're looking at charitable giving. And so just as they're being served by the, our CPA counterparts, the portfolio is part of that conversation, looking for planning opportunities of losses that we've harvested, charitable giving to donor advised funds, uh, estate strategies and gifting to heirs. And so we're just an extension of the planning team, and it's just one of the assets that we're helping to plan around. Often it's air preparation, and it's continued exploration around the qualitative plannings and ways that we can use our knowledge, network, and influence to support their qualitative capital that we talked about at the front end and connecting that to their financial capital as well. So now help us understand some of the journey of the the growth of the practice itself. So you said this wealth management offering started back in 2016 as an extension off the off the accounting firm. Obviously, it's had some pretty good, really good growth overall to be at, at 260 million after barely five years. But h- help us understand just how that growth and evolution has occurred. Like, what was it? What was it like in the first year or two? How did it? How did it get going? I think you use the iceberg of success metaphor, you know, that people can see the tip of the iceberg, but the remaining 90% that they can't see goes unnoticed. Yes. And is where all where all the hard stuff happens, right? Beneath the surface in our businesses. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was at a spot in my life and career where I was incredibly focused on on a specific set of tasks and opportunities. I mean, I came from the accounting practice, not from the financial services practice. I wasn't an associate advisor. Day one, I was our chief compliance officer, our lead advisor, our you know client service associate. I hit everything. And you know, if you had to organize knowledge into three buckets, there's the things you know, the things you don't know, and the dangerous third bucket, the things you didn't know you didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I swam in that third bucket during the early years. It was brutal. So we have grown a lot, but but the hidden implication is is that could be a proxy for learning. 
I mean, I had to learn so much. And, and along the way, learning in, in real life looks like mistakes. Learning in real life right. looks like failure. And it's difficult <laughs> to not stumble into despair. There was a moment in 2019 where I was sitting there and I was, we were having a lot of success with clients, but the operational implementation of how do we get these things papered? How do we get our portfolio management system operating so that we can rebalance on a household level? How do I do it in a way that's compliant with the state of Oregon? And we're quickly becoming SEC registered. I mean, the amount of learning that was required to go from zero to where we are today it is immense. And yeah. Angela Duckworth's you know, emphasis on her research around grit holy smokes, does this industry require a high level of grit? You know, that combination of perseverance and passion for what you're doing, and it'll test your mettle. So how did it actually get going? Like, just did clients basically start showing up immediately because you you had this existing base of clients in the CPA practice so you could do a rollout and, and just say, hey, we're, we're now offering this new additional service as a, as a client to the firm. You have an opportunity to take advantage. And, and, and off it went. I mean, did it, did it get going that quickly or was it still slower and grindier? Probably yes to both. You know, there's a high level of, of trust, you know, survey after survey that's done, you know, a high percentage of people that own and operate businesses would indicate that their CPA is their most trusted business partner. So we all see that and know that, but there's probably some psychographics to why they're the most trusted business partner. If you're just kind of looking at the psychographics of who starts businesses, it's risk takers. It's people that see opportunity, the metaphorical gas pedal, and the CPA can often be the person that sees risk, sees uncertainty, and they represent the metaphorical break in any sort of decision. And so that's why trust uh, takes a long time to, to develop with a CPA. And so you know, my business partners all had an incredible amount of trust in my character. They, they knew who I was, but it took, them, it took a little while to develop credibility uh, in terms of professional aptitude. Do we know what we're doing here? Because we never wanted to do something to, to harm a client. And so, you know, we grew and, and learned a lot along the way. What software to use? What investment thesis to use? How to build a portfolio? What's, what portfolio management software to use? Where to custodian? So, you know, uh, I got a lot of things wrong, but right out of the gate, one of the decisions that I feel like for us that I made that was was the right decision is to be a, a fiduciary partner to these clients. And, and so we structured ourselves as a, as a fee-only RIA so that we could continue to just create that alignment that they knew of our firm culturally as a CPA firm. So what came next as the as the business started started growing and getting underway? Like what was the first challenge point that cropped up then? Probably our investment thesis. You know, right out of the gate, we hired a sub-advisor that had a 30-year track record, had billions of dollars of of assets under management because I certainly wasn't uh, a portfolio manager at that moment. And so real quickly I I started to to research, you know, from an investment thesis perspective, what I believed, what my partners believed, and and how we could structure a portfolio to most add value to to the clients. And so, you know, shortly in, into our journey, we we iterated and updated our investment thesis from an active one to more of an evidence based implementation of of kind of the Fama French approach. Interesting. Next, had- so your so your evolution towards towards a more efficient markets hypothesis framework was because you lived with the firm that was more active and wasn't wasn't delivering for you. Yeah, I mean right out of the gate it was just operation like operationally I'm looking at does this make sense and spending time looking at a lot of the empirical research and and went back to some of our earliest clients and said, "Hey, I've continued to learn and grow and and here's what we believe to be true and I would be doing a disservice if I didn't have this conversation with you." And uh everyone said, "Great. 
I appreciate that. And uh, let's implement. And so next came the implementation of a performance management software, you know, had to figure out what the right software was from a financial planning perspective and portfolio management perspective. And what did you implement? Implemented eMoney from a financial planning perspective and implemented Orion from a kind of portfolio management perspective. Wait, so what what are you using eMoney for? Because you had said earlier your second step of planning process was Money Guide Pro-based. Yeah. Early on, looked at the opportunity to do kind of more advanced tax planning, uh, estate tax planning, liked e-money out of the gate and implemented that. Uh, It was a a nice thing because of the ability to demonstrate the implications of decisions, the opportunity to simulate a decision in front of the client and visualize data. Uh, I I thought that was a very powerful tool. Particularly around around tax-related decisions, I take it? Yeah, a lot of the kind of the decision center implementation of scenario analysis, like, hey, here's what happens if we gift today or don't. Here's what happens if we, you know, so kind of that A-B testing in front of the client so that you could visualize the data. Because you know, obviously so, the clients don't understand kind of the impact of compound interest over long periods right. of time. None of our brains do. I mean, I know Money Guide has some play zone capabilities to to facilitate that as well, but I guess play... Play zones a little bit more around the retirement projections. Your clients don't actually have retirement issues because there's already enough dollars. Their their goals are typically getting checked. So decision center and e-money works better for you because you can actually start modeling some of the like gifting and tax implications of decisions as opposed to the retirement projections portion. Is that a yeah a, a good yeah, characterization? Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, the decision to to move towards money guide was in part inspired by that's that was part of the tech stack that it was already developed and existed at Buckingham. The technology worked way better together than I could ever get it to work. And there's a simplification, you know, in, in goals-based planning that I really appreciate about kind of our, our the money guide process. So we continue to to subscribe to both and we continue to use both, but you know, money guide currently is our primary tool. And if we need something more rigorous from an estate planning perspective, we're either using tax software from the CPA firm or e-money. And then where does Orion fit in the picture? Yeah, Orion is our, you know, it's where the reports are run. It's where a lot of the operational dashboards reside. It's where performance reporting resides. It's where our client portal currently resides, kind of the hub. And so you use you use Orion as a client portal as opposed to eMoney because I know they've got their own client portal offering. Yep, correct. Currently using Orion for for the hub and then, you know, from a CRM perspective using Redtail. And what led you to Orion? I demoed a bunch of the different products, looked at satisfaction scores, some industry reports, and probably the sales process. I mean, it was, at the end of the day, it felt right. Seemed like it was a, a tool that was rapidly growing. They were investing in the tool uh, quickly. User interface looked a little bit more intuitive, modern. And, and candidly, it's been, a, it's been a good platform for us. I think we've been serviced well and it's met our needs. And then what about Redtail? Like what, what led you to Redtail or what else were you looking at to decide on Redtail? Yeah. Initially knew we needed a CRM. And from an, a macro perspective, it seemed as though the industry leader you know, across the country is uh, Salesforce. So we initially started with Salesforce, but it was signif- it was overkill for where we were at or what we needed. Hmm. It kind of felt like I had a <laughs> a six-speed Porsche, but didn't know how to drive stick. And so... I ultimately liked the user interface uh, of Redtail, how intuitive it was. The price was attractive, and it was a way to to begin to build the habits and workflows necessary to scale the practice on. 
So talk to us more about just how the firm kind of grew and scaled up as you've just gone from getting started to 260 million in in five years. Like what does that look like from a growth and infrastructure and hiring perspective? Yeah, it's continuing to evolve. It's definitely nonlinear. The first hire I made was a client service associate, somebody to help paper these accounts and interface between our firm and the custodian, somebody to serve the client. So that was the first hire. And then the second hire was another client service associate because my first client service associate pursued uh, their CFP, earned it. They had 20 years of industry experience previously. And so they started to function as our first planner. And that seemed to help uh, emphasize our, our planning capacity and, and focus. And so then we hired another client service associate because we were onboarding a lot of clients and didn't want to compromise the client experience. I believe there's opportunities to automate client service more than there is the client experience. And I wanted to to be a high quality client experience firm. That's the demographic of client that we serve. They, they stay at the nicest places and are willing to pay more to be served well and wanted to make sure that we were adequately resourced from a service perspective to be high touch mm-hmm. and responsive. And my business partner that started in the wealth advisory practice with me has continued to, you know, to invest more and more of his time and focus in the wealth advisory practice. So that expanded our advisory level support and uh, most recently have hired uh, another advisor who comes from you know public accounting and CFO experience, but was also in the family office for a large family as an analyst and so has an understanding of of a lot of different industries. And so from a talent stack perspective, I thought that was an interesting skill set and uh, and they jumped on and and it's been really additive to the team. So that's the kind of the hiring of advisors and 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 CSAs. So help me understand again where like where back office outsourcing fits in for you. Because it sounds like you were you were essentially using some level of sub-advisor out of the gate and and have always lived in this world where advising work is happening internal to the firm, but investment investment stuff is happening outsourced from the firm. Is that a, a good characterization? Yeah, when when we quickly moved from an active portfolio to a, a evidence-based portfolio, we brought portfolio management in-house. And so there was uh, from probably 2017 through the end of 2019. So for about you know 17, 18, 19, we were managing the portfolio in house on our own with uh, with Orion, attempting to get Eclipse uh, implemented. At the end of 2019, we were at about 100 million dollars, but it was having personnel challenges and operational challenges. It just there was more things to do than there was time to do it, and I just was trying to figure out how do I make my job fun. Like I was not having fun. I was ready to kind of bag it. Like, hey, we had a hundred million, but I was I hated my job. I wasn't looking forward to to Monday. I spent ninety percent of my time in tasks that took energy from me. And it was it was joyless. And I just said, you know, how do I create time as quickly as possible and start spending more of my day in the things that I'm good at, the parts of the job that I authentically love. That's when I stumbled into your podcast with Dan Goldie was, I think it was uh, episode 131 and I was driving and I heard it and I sat in the car and I listened to this guy who had grown his practice to at that time, almost $900 million of assets under management, I believe with just one client service associate and in a back office. And I was just blown away. That was unfathomable to me that somebody could do that. It clearly a very talented and special person, 
but I knew that virtualizing a component of the operations had to have played a critical role in that process. And so that's where I started the the due diligence of how could we get capacity quickly to go positively impact clients' lives where they actually value our time, energy, and effort versus some of this back and middle office stuff where it's kind of permission to play. I'm just wondering, like you would frame this as personnel and operational challenges. Like just what what was coming up at this size and stage that was so dragging you down that you said like 90% of your time were tasks that were joyless for you? Like what, what, what was going on that was dragging you down so much? On a daily basis, I'd, I'd encounter countless questions that I didn't have answers for. How do I get e-money to do this? And no one in my firm had ever worked with it before. So then I'm on, you know, 1-800 and I'm on their customer service line. And then I'm dealing with a, you know, complicated client fact pattern with a trust and intergenerational heirs. And I don't know how to get the paperwork at Schwab done right. And when you're less than $100 million, you're serviced differently at a custodian than you would be if you had a billion dollars. And so we were struggling with our relationship at the custodial level. How do you implement a household rebalancer? And so you're just perpetually just, you're overwhelmed with questions that I didn't have experience or aptitude in. And so, and it was stuff that I wasn't attracted to. And so I'm just slodging through, slugging through all this stuff that I didn't really particularly care for. So I just wanted to spend time with with current clients and prospective clients hearing about, you know, their hopes, dreams, and wishes. And, and I, yeah. I'm bored by the the back end of the business. I'm not good at it. So ultimately, the, the appeal then was sort of Dan Goldie style, like, I just want to send this all out to someone who can deal with the stuff so I can get back to the client stuff I enjoy doing. Absolutely. And, and obviously, there's there's incredible firms that have built it from the ground up. I just knew that if I was looking to have a, a significantly improved infrastructure going into 2020, the fastest way to get there was through a you know back office partner. And so how did you decide like who to go after and who to partner with? Because there's no no shortage these days of platforms that are willing to be outsourcing for advisors. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I, I started with people that I trusted. I called throughout our global alliance of public accounting firms. So partners of, of public accounting firms working within their wealth advisory practice started there. But I also started with who Dan Goldie was working with. And, and so I put in a call to, it was Loring Ward at the time that had already kind of started the process of becoming Buckingham after after their merger. And, you know, the other half of the partner, you know, Buckingham comes from that CPA heritage. And so that that orientation of tax efficiency and planning culturally felt aligned. And that relationship from an investment thesis perspective felt really aligned. But it takes a tremendous amount of trust because it's tough to take a back office for a test drive. You know, yeah. you, you sit through the the sales experience, and you just hope that they're going to be able to deliver the way that they say they they are, and you you know that you're doing everything possible to not violate the trust that the clients have have extended to you, and you certainly don't want to create any sort of unnecessary disruption. So, who else were you looking at? I mean, were you like vetting and talking to a bunch of different firms, or narrow down pretty quickly? Like, if it worked for Dan Goldie, getting almost a billion, it'll probably work for me too. <laughs> It was a lot of social proof. If it worked for Dan, it worked for me. Other people had said great things about Buckingham. Dimensional had said great things about Buckingham. And, and so- Were you already using Dimensional when you were doing it internally from 27 to 2019? Correct. Yes. Okay. And so were there particular deciding factors of just either pulling the trigger in general or pulling the trigger with, with Loring Ward slash Buckingham in particular as to like what, what got you to say, okay, it's, it's go time. We're going to do this. I wanted to like my job again. 
And I knew that I wasn't going to last in the role much longer if I didn't change what my days looked like and felt like. And so there was that desire, knowing that I was really the the partner tasked with growing this service line. How do we expand it? And it was also the desire to increase our impact with our clients. I knew if I freed up more time to go spend time doing what we did best, my opportunity to positively impact our clients and scale it would be significantly increased. And so I, I just viewed it as a as an investment in the business to create scale and speed and impact. And if we're at creating more impact for our clients, they're obviously going to be willing to compensate us for it. And hopefully if we do it well, tell our story in the marketplace so that our sales efforts would be more, you know, virtualized by having our clients tell our story for us. And so as you decide to to move forward, how do you think about this just from a a business economics perspective? Because out, outsourcing back office is not inexpensive unto itself. So how how do you think about the cost of of paying a platform for doing this? At, at that moment in time, it was it was something I thought about. But at the end of the day, I looked at what is the opportunity in front of us to scale, and it was immense. I think within our own existing client relationships from the accounting firm perspective, there's a billion plus dollar opportunity with the clients that we already serve. And so the opportunity to begin to pursue that more quickly and effectively to me was a, was a bit of a no brainer. I think down the road, you can always revisit expense, but you know, revenue is infinitely scalable, but expenses aren't infinitely, you know, cuttable. And so if we focus on growing our revenue, growing the value that we're, we're creating for our clients and the value that we're creating within our, our firm, I figure we can always circle back and, and expense optimize down the road. But it's been a spectacular move for us to really lean into our strengths and our you know, metaphorical hedgehog. Interesting. So the, so the, the framing for, for you was, I'm, I'm not necessarily doing this as a, a cost minimizer, profit maximizer. I'm doing this because I've actually see enough growth opportunity in front of me that if I can just if I just make scaling the back office their problem and not my problem and have reasonable trust they can do that successfully. I can focus on growing the revenue. If I grow the revenue enough, I'm, I'm I may not even care that much about the actual <laughs> expense side at the end of the day as long as it's net profitable overall because we're just going to grow so much. Like there's going to be plenty of dollars on the table for everyone. Probably that. I mean, at at the end of the day. I, I wanted to be a better firm. Better is more important than bigger, I believe. You know, bigger is a byproduct of better, and I wanted to get better faster. And, and so kind of a tongue tongue twister there, but I just wanted to level up our game, and I knew if I had more time, we would. And, and so no need to create something that's already been created. It's why I'm an avid, avid reader. I, I What I love about reading is is kind of that Abe, Abe Lincoln quote, a capacity and a taste for reading gives you access to whatever's already been discovered by others. It's the key or one of the keys to solving problems that have already been solved. I mean, somebody had already solved this problem, and so there was no need for me to go solve it again. And so I just wanted to get back to the business, create more value, knowing that revenue would follow. And so what came next as you as you made this transition to say, okay, we're we're gonna stop doing this internally, we're gonna start doing it externally because we think that that lets us scale the revenue more more quickly. So you were you were I think you said you were you were coming up on 100 million at the time at the end of 2019. So what what happened as you made the transition? Like how did that how did that go? <laughs> COVID happened shortly thereafter. Uh, well, that was good planning. Yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly uh, it was fantastic to have a highly competent, nimble 
trading team able to trade the portfolio with a level of precision that I was delighted to talk to our clients about during COVID. But I guess I'd back that up too. At the end of the day, I wanted to start with creating trust and understanding of what our value proposition was across the entire firm. And so, you know, over the over the years, I've really focused on making sure that our own team understood what it was that we were doing and why we were doing it. Uh, so they had the knowledge to speak with confidence and conviction around the solution. And so uh, there was a lot of education across the firm. Many of my partners have attended, you know, advanced trainings around planning and, and investment management just so that they could be competent speaking to these various things. You know, at the end of the day, we all have our, our circle of competence. They're all laser focused on whatever particular service line or discipline that they're in charge of, but trying to create shared vision uh, across the organization. So what's growth been since then? Like I'm, I'm just trying to patch the other timeline. Ultimately, you were you were at 100 million at the end of 2019. You you had said earlier you're at 260 million now. So it sounds like not notwithstanding COVID and the disruptions of COVID, like a lot of growth has come over the past two years. Yeah, yeah. And so probably like a lot of places, you know, Oregon's probably more shut down than other states. You know, our office isn't really open even, even at the moment of this recording. And so the vast majority of that growth has occurred in a virtual environment. And so it required us as a team to figure out how do we, how do we execute these plans in a virtual environment? How do we virtualize our sales process in a way that gets people comfortable quickly in a virtual environment. And I think the move to virtualize our back office gave us a 90, 90 day head start on how to be better prepared for, for COVID. And then I also continued to have the time to, to meet the needs that our current clients had during COVID, but also be available for the business opportunities that COVID created. And so just where's, where's this you know, acceleration in growth coming from? Is it, it still ultimately driven by clients coming through from the, the CPA side of the business? Yeah, I, I think it's further further refining what it is we do. You know, strategy, to some extent by nature, I think, you know, Michael Porter out of Harvard talks about strategies about making choices and trade-offs, you know, deliberately choosing to be different. And so for us, kind of narrowing our focus of who we're serving allows us to be more effective in those clients that we're serving. So to help our business owners that were looking to transition businesses more efficiently, work that we were doing a little bit before, my business partner and I went and earned our certified exit planning advisor designation just to have more knowledge and framework around how do you increase the value of a business and transfer transfer it more tax efficiently to, to clients on an after-tax basis. And part of that process involves financial planning. And so it seems as though if you were to begin with the end in mind, generally maximizing the value of a business is a business owner's goal. Right. And so it allows us to partner with those clients ahead of the, ahead of time, well before the exit. And so the trust and plan has been built prior to the liquidity event occurring. And so a lot of that growth has come from money in motion, but we were helping to architect the, the post-exit plan long before the liquidity event versus just showing up after the story hit the news. Right. So was the that program, the the certified exit planner designation, actually helpful for you in practice and in, in facilitating those conversations or, or helping to give you better conversations around maximizing enterprise value for business owner clients? It's helpful to to understand kind of a general framework to communicate more effectively. It helped us you know, put a stake in the ground a little bit that this was something that we were focused on that combined with the tax focus, the tax integration. At the end of the day, that's money in motion, there's a tremendous amount of planning opportunities that occur 
when somebody's taken 20 or 30 years to to create the wealth to transition it tax efficiently and that typically involves you know estate planning and philanthropic planning asset allocation decisions cash flow planning yeah, so the sepa was uh, was just kind of it gave us some scaffolding to go have more meaningful conversations and it also allowed us to to leverage a lot of the experiences and insight that we already had but but in a mo- more coherent delivery and so what ultimately has brought the acceleration for growth I mean, I'm just sort of doing math overall, like a hundred million in the first three plus years, 160 million over just the past two years. Like what changed that led to the inflection of the growth? I mean, was this the the outsourcing decision? Was this the COVID environment? Was this the the deeper focus on business owners? Like what's what's driven the inflection? <laughs> I think it's all of it. It was that uh, heightened level of focus. The impact of the focus was enhanced when we created more time by the decision to to outsource. I think the humility and courage to perpetually invent, fail, learn, and grow was certainly part of it. Phil Jackson, the basketball coach, had a quote that uh, that I love. The strength of the individual is the team, but the strength of the team is the individual. Clearly, I, I'm not doing this alone, and it takes many people and an incredible amount of trust that has been uh, developed over the course of many, many years. And so it's all of those decisions and inputs in aggregate is really where it's gotten us to, to where we are today. And, and candidly, I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface. There's still significant opportunity that hasn't been realized, aptitudes that haven't been developed, and just opportunity to, I think, further create efficiencies on the back end of the business that allows us to spend more time with the client, which is really where I think we add the most value. So what surprised you the most about just building an advisory business? I, I guess what, would su- what surprised me was how complicated it was. You know, I, I mm. think... You look at the the world's perception of it, and you just see the top ten percent of the of the iceberg. And so right. my perception was, <laughs> you invest the dollars, the market goes up, <laughs> that you play a lot of golf, you know, work short hours, and <laughs> make a lot of money. And uh, and that, man, I was uh, I, I was humbled immensely by the complexity mm. of all of the different inputs. That, that have to go into successfully scaling a financial planning and investment advisory practice and, and candidly continue to be stretched in, in new ways that, uh, that I wasn't pri- previously. You know, growth creates new opportunities, but also creates new challenges. And so we're, we're still well within that iterative learning process. So what was the low point for the journey? Oh, the, the low point was in the fourth quarter of 2019. It was around the time that I listened to the Dan Dan Goldie podcast. We had had clients say yes. Getting clients to say yes wasn't wasn't the hard part, but it was getting everything through the funnel in a way that was scalable that uh, that I was struggling with. And so, two things can exist simultaneously. Something can be both good and bad. And and so we were having success with clients at the front end, but then it felt like there was this traffic jam in, in the middle back office that that I just couldn't seem to fix fast enough. And the opportunities were were coming to us faster than I could fix the middle back office. And so I, I don't like feeling like a failure. Most people don't. And, uh, and so I just was like, do I have the, do I have the skill or aptitude to honor the opportunity that my partners have extended to me in this wealth advisory practice? You know, I didn't want to be the guy that, that squandered an opportunity. I knew that, that there was an incredible opportunity in front of us. And I just felt inadequate, I guess. Like, how come I can't figure this out? It, it, it doesn't, it shouldn't be this hard. I, I wasn't inventing an industry. I wasn't inventing a technology, but trying to get it all to come together 
in a way that worked well internally and externally was shockingly difficult. And that was what ultimately led you in the direction of that I'm, I'm just going to find a partner who's figured this out and let them do that part. And I'm going to get back to the part that I enjoy doing. Totally. Why do I need to build something that's already been built? I'm not having fun doing it. I'm not uniquely great at it. It's not a differentiator in the marketplace. How do I get back to what I like? And for you, just uh, the cost of that was a comfortable trade-off. Absolutely. Because I knew I knew we would be rewarded ultimately by creating more value for our clients that would, would ultimately be followed by, by growth and revenue. So what do you know now that you about just building and growing the business that you wish you could go back and tell you from five years ago when you were getting started? It's a great question. You know, generally you learn something from all of your experiences. And so there's always something good that comes from the adversity. It allows you to to have experiences, create talent stacks, understandings that you wouldn't have otherwise had. You know, sometimes I appreciate the failures that I've had in life because it allows me to be more grateful today for where we're at. It, you know, tough to appreciate the peak if you've never been in the valley. But uh, but in hindsight, if I was trying to create the straight line to where we are today, I would have just started with with a virtual back office versus having to, to struggle with creating it from scratch. Because, you know, I would have rented the infrastructure so that I could get to work in the part of the business that I'm particularly interested in and feel like I'm more more talented in than, than the other parts of the business. So what advice would you give to younger or newer advisors that are just are looking to get into the business today and, and figuring out their path? Well, if knowledge is power, knowing what we don't know is wisdom. And so I'd say approach it with this desire to learn and grow because complacency is rarely rewarded. And advice I once heard from a from a tech entrepreneur was kind of find your tennis ball. And and the tennis ball metaphor was was meant to be, you know, you don't have to teach a lab to retrieve a tennis ball. It's not work, it's play. And so find parts of the job that you're naturally attracted to so that when the metaphorical tennis ball gets tossed again, it's not work but play. And the more time I spend with the metaphorical tennis ball of our industry, the more joy, more happiness, more fulfillment I have. And that's translating into more success. And it's kind of this virtuous cycle once you can spend time chasing the tennis ball. How do you figure out your tennis ball if you're not sure what your tennis ball is yet? I think it it just probably requires you to to try a lot of different things, right? Like very rarely do people meet and date and marry the very first person that they hang out with, right? And so I think you kind of have to try a lot of different things to figure out what you like, what you're good at, and and where you can add value to an organization. There's this concept of like an ikagi is the name of it. It's kind of a Japanese concept of the intersection of what you're good at, what the world needs, what you can get paid for, kind of a Venn diagram, Carl Richards style, you know, yep. visualize a complicated concept visually. And, uh, and I think it just takes some experiences in life. And so understanding that it's going to be an iterative process, understanding that you can't start today where you want to end up, that it takes continued learning and growing. Yeah. I, I guess patience and humility, something that at, at times throughout my career I've lacked is probably a wonderful character trait to have if you're going to try to be successful within this industry because it's forever changing and, and again, more difficult than I think outsiders realize. So what, what comes next for you? You know, for me, we're, again, the growth is exciting, but it also creates some new challenges. And so how do we scale this beyond just one, you know, one and a half advisors to, to now we're at two and a half? Like, how do we scale that effectively and how do we scale it to three? And, and so how do we harness this power of a shared vision across 
various service lines, all these things create challenges because at the end of the day, a lot of our value proposition is our personnel. Like any professional services business, you know, your, your primary asset goes, goes home metaphorically back when we were in the office every day. And so how do you attract, retain, train people that share the vision, but also share that aptitude because the aptitude that we're, we're selling, so to speak, is a, is an aptitude that takes a long time to, to build. You know, for me, it was five or 6,000 hours in advanced tax planning meetings before even stepping foot into the quote RIA space and five or 6,000 hours doesn't replicate itself quickly. And it's continued to expand over that period of time. There are no shortcuts, I guess, to developing that expertise. But I, I guess I'm enjoying the challenge. It just requires new learning and I'm energized by new challenges and new learning. And I'm also trying to get better at the, the, the sale that we we're talking about earlier. You know, how do we help clients discover the desire to explore and love and pursue purpose? And how, from a financial advisory perspective, can we be the mast that connects the sale to, to the stability of the, the boat, which is often their finances? So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're you're on this track of building a, you know, a wonderfully successful business and, and, and hundreds of millions of dollars under management in just a relatively few years. So the, the business is going very well. But h- how do you define success for yourself at this point? I think there's an eternal definition of success that closely aligns with Warren Buffett's definition of success, that when you get to the end of your life, the people that you want to love you actually do. And so I just want to be somebody that uh, that leaves people better than I found them. And it, I'm excited about the opportunity to create a, a unique culture within our RIA community and in the firm that we're growing to positively impact business owners throughout the, the Northwest, help encourage them to explore their purpose, love, and ultimately kind of the transcendence of, of wealth from power to impact so that they leave their families and communities better. Very cool. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>